There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are studying the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter six. So turn there now, if you will. We're going to do some review, and then we're going to um, really uh, talk about a tough doctrine. Um, I'll just leave it at that for now. Anyway, where we are is we're about a um, little uh, less than a year from the cross in Jesus's ministry on planet Earth. Um, what we just saw in chapter six was Jesus changed um, a few loaves and a, uh, of bread and fish into a meal for about 20 to 25,000 people. Just an amazing miracle. And every miracle, remember, in the Bible is a sign, and signs point to something. What he po was pointing to, he mentions later in the chapter, that he is the ultimate bread, the bread of life. And he draws a um, parallel between himself as the bread that comes down from heaven and the bread, the manna that God gave the Jews in uh, the wandering after they left Egypt. He's the bread. Bread speaks of nourishment and the thing you need to have life. So he says in this chapter that people will never be hungry or thirsty who come to him. Um, some pretty amazing claims. He claims that they'll have eternal life and he'll raise them up at the last day. We saw that over and over last week. Um, and then he revealed this very surprising way that people come to faith. And most of you, I'm thinking, maybe all of you, whether on Zoom or here in person, are believers because we're not giving away free food and it's not that exciting to be here. You must be believers. Why else would you be here? So the question is, how did you do it? And some people would say, well, I investigated different religions or I investigated Christianity and I am a spiritual person and I came to the decision. I came to Jesus Christ. And John 6 pretty much says, no, you didn't. Um, it's kind of surprising. So this is a doctrine that some people just hate. Um, and I was in that camp for a long time. And so I've just come to see it in the Bible so much that I now believe it. So let's take a look at it. The sidebar thing that's going to be happening in this chapter is... Um, Jesus is going to preach with such um, unabashed power that a lot of people that were following him are going to split. They're going to abandon Christianity. They're not going to believe anymore. Uh, kind of surprising. But we'll see that that is not, not the case that he lost in any way. Anyway, um, those of you that are here and those of you on Zoom, so I know you're awake, say amen. Oh, that was a good one here tonight. Wow. Uh, those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen so I know you're not snoozing on the couch. Okay, I want to pick up, um, let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am, the, this is review mostly, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Claims to meet our needs in a way that regular food doesn't do. Nothing else can fill that void. Verse 36, but as I told you, Jesus says, you've seen me and still you do not believe. So most of us would think, well, they haven't made that decision yet. They haven't been educated enough. Now he's going to start explaining how the mechanics of how people believe. If you will, he's not going to drive by in a car. He's going to open the hood and show you the engine of salvation. And it's surprising. Verse 37, all those, he means people, 
All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He's speaking of people that are believers as if they're gifts from God, given, handed over to Jesus. And it's almost like you're each, each of us are in a little box with a ribbon on the top. How much did you have to do with verse 37? I'm just the one that he somehow decided to give to Jesus, right? We'll say more about that in a second. But I want you to notice the word all. The father doesn't give Jesus a billion people and 800 million come to him and 200 just say, no, thank you. What this says is whatever the number is, let's say it's 3 billion people in the history of the world, the father has given to Jesus. This verse says every single one of them will come to Jesus, everyone. And the flip side is the last half of verse 37. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I'll never drive away. So once you've come to him, he's not going to kick you out of the club, so to speak. Last thing before we dive in even more, this whole chapter goes back and forth between God's view of things and man's view. Okay. Verse 37 is God's view. How does salvation ha happen, Lord? Every, Jesus says, everybody that the Father gives me is going to come to me, and whoever comes to me, I won't drive them away. Verse 38, I've come down from heaven. It's a pretty astounding thing, right? Pre-existence. He existed before the manger, before Bethlehem, before the world was created, John 1 says. He was already there. I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's saying, I'm not like other preachers that have their own will. I'm just here to do God's will 100%. You say, what does that have to do with verse 37? The question may arise, is it God's will to be saved or whatever? How many will be saved? He had said all earlier. Watch this. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. If you're somebody that God has given to Jesus, how would I know that? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. You're one of the ones that has been given. Do I understand this fully? No. But then again, do I understand fully that God's, Jesus spoke, God spoke, and planets situated themselves in the sky? I don't understand that. Do I understand that he made Adam out of the dust of the earth? No. Do I understand all the paradoxes? For example, Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel. Isaiah wrote Isaiah. John wrote the Gospel of John. And yet, the Holy Spirit wrote every book of the Bible. Well, which is it? Both. It's a paradox, right? Paradox, by the way, is not two doctors. A paradox is an apparent contradiction. Apparent contradiction that, that is both are true. And the Bible is full of them. Jesus Christ is fully human. And he's also fully God. Well, which is it? It's a paradox, not two doctors. Okay. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose none of those he's given me. Are you one of the ones he gave to Christ? Yes. He's not going to lose one. He's got you held in his hand. We're going to see that in a little while. I don't believe a believer, a true believer, can lose their salvation. We'll get to that as well. That's called eternal security. 
uh, another one of those doctrines some people have problems with. Um, yeah, I'm not going to lose any. I'm going to raise them up at the last day, 39. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. He's saying it's God's will that if you look to the son and believe, you'll have eternal life. Why does that matter? Because all through the Old Testament, God keeps saying in Isaiah and other places, things like, um, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Remember, he's God who can stop God from doing his will. My will will stand. I will do all that I please. I um, lost my place. Hold on. Um, mm -hmm. There it is. What I have said, I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. God can predict the future because he's, it's his story, history, his story. He makes the future happen. If it's his will, it happens. What's your point? Read 39 again. It's his will. Um, verse 40, I mean, uh, the father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes shall have eternal life and he'll raise them up. Verse 41, the Jews start to grumble. They don't like that. He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They say, verse 42, isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he say I came down from heaven? Jesus, the man, his life began in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, Christ, son of God, second person of the Trinity, the logos, the word existed previously to Bethlehem forever in the past and will in the future. Um, fully God, fully man. Stop grumbling. Remember that the Jews are always thinking in terms of the physical. Jesus is always speaking in terms of the spiritual. It's another thing that's uh, overlying this whole chapter. Stop grumbling, he says, verse 43. Here comes again another one of those verses, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Translation If you came to God, you didn't make the decision to come to Christ or to God. He was drawing you, pulling you in, maybe gradually over 10 years, maybe quickly over a month or a week. Who knows? For each person, it's different. But you did not come on your own. Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament, says, this is an astounding thing. There is no one that seeks God. No one. There's no one that does good. No one. This is Romans 3. Therefore, when you say, well, I was seeking God, Romans 3 says, John says, no, you weren't. God was drawing you, which then made you seek God. But what Romans 3 means is on your own, you don't seek God. The reason for it is in the second chapter of Ephesians, verse 1, which says, as unbelievers, all unbelievers have something in common. They are not sick spiritually. They're not damaged spiritually. They are what class? Dead spiritually. Very good, Joe. I saw you in the back there. Dead spiritually. Dead men don't get up and believe unless God draws them, calls them. The Holy Spirit quickens them. It's an old English word. It means to make alive. That's why John 3 talks about you have to be what? Born again not physically, spiritually. No one can come to me unless the Father sends me, uh, sent me draws him. Um, 45, well, they'll all be taught of God. That's Old Testament talking about how the people that come to him get the teaching directly from God. That's the drawing where suddenly the Bible begins to make sense. Sermons, Bible studies begin to make sense. And you go, wow, this is making sense to me now. I'm coming to faith. You may think you're coming on your own, 
you're being drawn by God. We said last week, the drawing of God is not the grabbing of a kidnapper on the streets of New York. It is the wooing of a lover. He loves you. You are his child. Ephesians 1 says, maybe we should go there real fast. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Keep your finger in John. So that's a, take a right turn and go maybe seven books. That's a guess. Could be more, but that's a good guess. Ephesians. So after the two Corinthian books, Galatians, then Ephesians, chapter one of Ephesians. Are you there? Say amen. amen. When did God choose you? Well, when I was searching back in 19, forget it. You're wrong. Look at verse four. For he, that's God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his, in his sight. In love, he, oh, there's that word everybody hates, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with how holy and, script and spiritual we were. Is that what it says? No. In accordance with how good we were, wrong. In accordance with his pleasure and will. When did God choose you according to verse four? Before the foundation of the world. Again, do I understand this? No. The question that always arises is why would he choose you, Joe, right? Or her or him or whoever? I don't know. It's not because we wanted to be saved. It's not because we were more spiritual or more smart or anything. No one can boast, Ephesians 2 says. We'll talk about faith in a second. Um, let's see. By the way, while we're in Ephesians, look at chapter 2, verse 1, just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Talking about the unsaved state of each person is spiritually dead. If you witness to somebody really eloquently and they come to faith in Christ, you can't take credit and neither can I. Do you know why? Because if they're dead spiritually, it wasn't your words. It was God awaking them up and he's using you, but it's all from heaven. In John three, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, do you remember? He says, you must be born from above. It doesn't come from this plane. Go back to John six with me, if you will. Um, let's see, verse 47. I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. There it is again. Now he's going to compare himself with the manna. Remember the manna floated down from heaven overnight, came in the darkness and fed them daily, except for the day before the Sabbath, they got two feedings. Long story. This went on for years and years. That was all a picture of Jesus Christ, the true bread coming down from heaven, not manna that just was physical, but Jesus is the true spiritual bread. Watch. Your ancestors, verse 49, ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Meaning what? It gave them physical life for a while, but they died. Okay. And he just, remember, turned loaves into mass food for 20 or 30,000, 25,000 people. I am, let's see, wrong verse, uh, verse 50. But here, gesturing to himself, I believe, is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. 
When he talks about eating, he's talking about, I'm the bread you have to eat, as opposed to taste, nibble, sample. You ever go to Costco and there's free samples of something and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about come and feast on the true soul food, right? If you will, the bread of life, a person, meaning take him in, make him a part of yourself. We said last week, you are what you eat. You've heard that saying. He's saying, I'm the thing you need to take in to the degree that it becomes part of who you are and your thoughts change and your motivations change and your actions change. Everything, your words change. Everything changes because you've taken him in and the eternality that he has, the goodness that he has becomes yours because of the cross. Okay. I'm trying to rush through this and I'm not doing a very good job. Um, anyone may eat it and not die. I'm the living bread. Verse 51 that came down from heaven. We eat this bread will live forever. Now it gets worse for the Jews. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now we're, you know, if they're listening on this physical level, they're thinking, what is this cannibalism? And he need, need to be a lot fatter so that we could all have a bite, right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about, you have to believe in Jesus, listen, for who he is. And that includes the fact that he's about to give his flesh, which means his body, for the sins of the world on the cross. You say, I didn't see that in that verse. I'll show you. Verse 51. This bread, middle of the verse, is my flesh, notice, which I will give for the life of the world. Two things in that little phrase I just quoted. Number one, it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. I will what? Give. It's not, I will pay to those who've earned it. I'm going to give my flesh. The second thing is, I will. It's voluntary. It may look like he got arrested, beaten, whipped, and nailed to a cross, and he was a hapless victim. That's not the case. He was totally willing to do it. He could have called legions of angels. He could have knocked them all over and walked away if he wanted to. But what held him to the cross wasn't the nails. It was the love for you and you and him and me. That's what held him there. I will, the, the spread is my flesh. But the Jews understood you're not supposed to eat human flesh. They're thinking on the physical level. They don't like what he's saying one bit. Um, verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Oh, you know what? I forgot a few things. Let me go back. God chose us before the foundation of the world. God predestined us. We talked about all that. Um, I want to give you a little analogy, if I may. I've done this before in this Bible study, but you may not have heard it before. It, um, imagine that you're walking out in a grassy area way out in the country, and you come over a little hill, and you look down into a valley, and there's a single file line that goes for miles into the horizon of human beings. And you walk over there, you're so curious, and you tap the last person in line, and you say, what, excuse me, and they turn around, yeah, what is this line? And the person at the back of the line says, this is a line for people that are sinners, that have committed sins, that have not lived a perfect life. This is a line for people that deserve judgment from God. Get in line. And at first you want to say, well, I'm not that bad. And then you realize, yeah. And you get in line and you're thinking, wow. 
this is almost like death row. This is what I deserve. And people come behind you and they get in line. Are you there correctly? Yes, you're a sinner. You deserve punishment. This is before you were a believer. Here comes a guy with a robe and a beard and long hair and sandals, and it's Christ. And you can't believe it, but he's coming along the line and pulling people out of the line. It's incredible. And you're watching it, and he pulls you out of line. And you realize, I don't deserve this. It's all him doing it. Okay, he's saving those people. You say, that is wonderful. Amen. That's so awesome. But what about the people still in line? It's not fair. Pulled you out, didn't pull them out. Is that right? No. Let me show you. If I, um, if I hire um, Ken to paint my garage for $1,000, we make a deal. He paints my garage for $1,000. If I pay him $400, is that fair? More than fair, less than fair. Less than fair. We agreed on a thousand. If I pay him a thousand dollars, is that fair? More than fair, less than fair. It's fair. But if I know he's in trouble financially and I give him $2,500, now you all want to paint my garage, don't you? If I give him $2,500, is that fair? Less than fair, more than fair. More than fair. Do I have the right to be fair? Yes. More than fair? Yes. But not less than fair. Would you agree? Let's go back to the analogy, the big, long line. Those people are in line. They deserve punishment from God. If he leaves those people in line, is that fair, less than fair, more than fair? It's fair. It's what they deserve, right? But if he pulls people out of line like you and says, come with me to my father's kingdom, is that fair? No, it's more than fair. So God is always at least fair, sometimes more than fair. Never is he less than fair. Do you see that? Now let's look at some scripture um, so that you'll be even more angry at me. Go to, um, this is a really good one. Let's go to Acts. So from John, go to the next book, book of Acts. This is an astounding verse. I want you, I'm going to read it and I want you to notice what it says and what it doesn't say. Okay. The context is uh, Paul and Barnabas are witnessing to some unbelievers about Christ. Got the picture? And verse 48, chapter 13 of Acts, one book to the right of John, chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles, these are unbelievers, when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? The gospel. They were glad and honored the word of the Lord. They believed. They honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word appointed means chosen, elect. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say what you're expecting it to say. And all who were, and all who believed were chosen for eternal life. That puts the cart before the horse. The verse says, 
Everyone who was appointed for eternal life believed. That ties in with John chapter 6 we read earlier, which everyone that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me. Who believed in Acts 13? Every single one that the Father had given to the Son. Every single one that the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, we're going to look at a few other verses. Now go one more book to the right. Go to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Everybody knows uh, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. We all love that one. Watch the succession of events here, starting in verse 29, Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that, I, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here comes the succession. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Justified, a good way to think of justified is, it's just as if I'd never sinned. He justified them in a court of law, not declared not guilty because he paid for their sins. And those he justified, he also glorified. It sounds like somebody's doing all the doing. What do you mean? He, God, foreknew. He predestined. He conformed them to the likeness of the Son. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. God does it all. In the Old Testament, you may know this. God chose Israel, right? He didn't choose Italy or Greece or Egypt or Canada, which didn't exist, but you know my point, right? He could have chosen another nation. He chose the Jews. <clears throat> Why? He tells us in the Old Testament, it wasn't because they were big and powerful and smart and because they were small and they were nothing. I don't understand why but I'm here and so are you. And he chose us. I don't know why I'm unbelievably thankful that in that single file line, he came and went, you come with me. Aren't you? This doctrine shouldn't make you conceited or boast. It should make you humble. And here's why, because if you came to him, because you're so spiritual and you're so much smarter than those unbelievers, you can look down your nose at them. But if it's true that you came because God did the drawing, the calling, the predestining, the knowing before, then all you can do is go, it was all him. It's not me. It's a beautiful doctrine. Okay, now do we want to go to, uh, let's go to John 17 and then Philippians 2. So go back to John chapter 17. Jesus, we get to eavesdrop as Jesus prays to his father in John 17. Turn the pages with me. The good thing about turning pages is it keeps you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was a weak one. Some of you are starting to fade away. John 17, verse 6. Jesus is praying, talking about believers. He says to his father, Jesus does, John 17, 6, I have revealed you to those you, what, gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now skip down to verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are 
yours. Again, I don't understand it, but I'm preaching it because I know it's true. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That's how long Jesus has existed. Now, the question always comes up with this stuff. What about free will? Okay, now we're going to go to Philippians 2, and I'll show you free will. Um, so go take a right, and it's right next to Ephesians. So you found Ephesians, you can find Philippians pretty easily. Chapter 2 of Philippians, right after Ephesians. Um, if you don't want to turn there, that's fine, but you, you won't get an A or even a B tonight. Okay, verse uh, 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, watch this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You say, okay, free will. He's telling us, all you believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Sounds like free will to me. Read the next verse. For it is God who works in you to will. That means to even want to show up to Bible study, church, read the Bible, pray, give to your church, help orphans, widows, whatever. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We won't go there now because I want to keep moving, but Romans. I think it's chapter 12, explains, because you may say, yeah, but I had the faith. That's why I'm saved. My, Jesus did it on the cross. Yes, I get that. God drew me. Yeah, that's good. But it was my faith. That's the important thing. Romans 12 says, unto each, listen, unto each believer is, ready, wait for it, given a measure of faith. Where did you get your faith? I built it up myself. No, you didn't. Even your faith was a gift from God. It's an astounding thing. Um, since you're in Philippians, take a left and go to Ephesians 2. I'll show you one more verse and then we'll uh, have pizza and go home. No, I'm just kidding. If, yeah, I know, really. Ephesians 2, are you there? For it is by grace you've been saved. Okay, stop right there. What does that mean? It means you didn't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's grace, something given to you. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. You, you say, ah, there's my faith. See, look at the next phrase. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Where'd you get the faith again? Even that was a gift. You, you and I can't take any credit. Keep reading. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God not by works. You didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, so that no one can boast. Okay, so then if I'm saved the way you're saying, Joe, then I'm just going to sit in a lounge chair and drink lemonade and watch soap operas because I don't need to do anything wrong. Look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There he is preparing in, again in advance. 
What's your point? My point is this. You don't, if you're doing good works to earn salvation, to get brownie points so that God will go, oh, that's 400 good works for her. I owe her something. Forget it. But if you're doing good works in gratitude for the unbelievable gift of being pulled out of that line, of being called, of being given his spirit, of being forgiven, of being loved like a son or daughter, if you're doing it in gratitude, way to go. And then it's all for his glory, not for yours, because you're not trying to earn it or deserve it. Okay, I'm getting dirty looks. Let's move on, shall we? <laughs> Nobody's left yet, though. Could somebody lock the doors? Just kidding. All right, go back to John 6. You remember John 6, don't you? It's going to get worse. What Jesus is about to do is tell them the truth. He is not seeker sensitive. You ever see those seeker sensitive churches? We don't preach hell here or sin or forgiveness. We just like to make everything very positive. There's a guy on TV who blinks a lot, whose initials are Joel Osteen. Anyway, he tends to do that. And it's all positive here. Jesus never learned from good old Joel who preaches, by the way, in the stadium in Houston that the Houston Rockets used to play play in. He bought it. Anyway, um, go back to John 6. Boy, I'm making enemies. Joel Osteen's never going to tune in again to the Bible study. Um, okay. The, so they're grumbling. How can he give us his flesh to eat? Verse 52. He's going to make it worse. 53. I tell you the truth. That's verily, verily, I say unto you. What do we always say that means? It means, listen up. This is really important. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Somebody's going, I see that grimace back there. Diane's grimacing. Does he mean this literally? No. Speaking spiritually. Now, there's three places in the Old Testament, twice in Deuteronomy, once in Leviticus, where the drinking of blood is absolutely forbidden for Jews. He can't be saying he means it literally, but the Jews are hearing him that way, and this is really going to make the ones that don't believe go away quickly. What he means is, we already know he, we've got to eat the bread, right, which is him, which is take him in to our body to the point that he becomes a part of us, right? As Lord and as Savior. But why the blood, Joe? It was good with the bread. We were good with the bread. The blood is gross. Blood, Old Testament, speaks of two things. Violent death. Okay, this is not old age where the guy just keels over in bed and dies, and God bless him, he's going on. Blood speaks of a violent death. It is a sacrifice in the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The whole lamb, the Passover lamb, it was a bloody mess. So was Jesus on the cross. He's saying, taking me in and eating the bread, you got to believe in me for who I am, the one that came down from heaven. I'm God in human flesh. But also, you got to accept the way I died, because that's the key. That's where I paid the price that kept you in that single file line to the point that you can step out of line now because you believe in that sacrifice. I was dying for your sins and her sins and hers and even mine. And there was a lot of them. Okay. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. Verse 54. 
and I will raise him up at the last day. By the way, look at the end of 53. Unless you eat the bread and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Meaning what? Ephesians 2, dead spiritually, not sick, dead. Um, has eternal life. Did you see that? Verse 54. If you believe in him now, you have eternal life. Let me ask you a question. How long is eternal life? It's eternal, Joe. It means forever. Okay, so if this guy over here has eternal life, but two years from now, he's going to stop going to church. He's going to become a male prostitute and a drug user and a murderer and uh, I don't know what else, a thief. Okay, whatever. Did he lose his salvation? What did verse 39 say? How many is he going to lose? None. So what are you saying? I'm saying this guy looked like he was saved, sounded like he was saved, went to church like he was saved. He was never saved, ever. Because if you're saved, you do continue to the end. And now I'll show you why. Stay in John. Go to chapter 10 of John. This, now we've moved on to another offensive doctrine, the doctrine of eternal security. The ones that are saved are truly saved, listen, forever. You may think, before we read John 10, you may think, I'm not worried about God losing me. I'm worried about me losing me, right? I might go off the deep end again like I did when I was a teenager, and who knows? John 10, pick it up in verse 26. Um, no, actually 27, my apologies. He's talking about people that believe, and he calls them his sheep. Verse 27, my sheep, listen to my voice. You do that. You're here right now listening, not to my voice. It's God's voice. It's the word of God. Amen. My sheep, hear my voice or listen to my voice. Verse 27, I know them and they follow me. That's believers. That's you. Watch. I give them eternal life. How long is eternal life again? Eternal. Yeah, we get it and they shall never perish. Here it comes. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. Verse 28, 29, sorry. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Whose hands are you in? Jesus's hands and God's hands, right? Remember all state, those old commercials, you're in good hands. So the two hands would come together in the ad. Okay. Some of you aren't old enough to know that. Whose hands are you in? The Father's hands and Jesus's hands. Who can snatch you out of those, compared, uh, based on those two verses, who can snatch you out of God's hands and Christ's hand? No one. So could he snatch you out of God's hands? No. Could she? No. Here it comes. You ready? Could you? Well, are you someone? Yes. Therefore, if no one can snatch you out of his hands, even you can't snatch him, snatch yourself out of his hands. Can you fall over and sin occasionally? Yes. And you know what God will do? He'll spank you like a good dad and pull you back into line. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Now go way to the back of the Bible, First John, and we'll move on from these doctrines so that you guys will start to like me again. First John is way at the back, four books from the end. So go to Revelation and take a left, Jude, and then three books that John wrote. We want First John chapter 2. 
Why are we going here, Joe? Because 1 John 2, starting in verse 19, is about people like the guy I just mentioned. They went to church with us. They prayed with us. She sang in the choir. He taught a Bible study. He was the elder in the church, whatever. And now they don't believe at all. They lost their salvation. Did they? 1 John 2, 19. Talking about people that, that are antichrists in verse 18. What did they do, John? Verse 19. They went out from us. But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have done something different. What would they have done? They would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Listen, there's people in churches that don't believe. They look like they believe. They talk like they believe. They know all the jargon. God bless you. Oh, praise God. They know all the little Christian verbiage, and they're not saved. Is it my job or yours to know she's saved, he isn't, he is, he's not? No, we don't know. You can look at fruits, you can get an idea, but listen, being in a church doesn't make you saved any more than being standing in a garage makes you a car or swimming in a lake makes you a duck. It doesn't, right? God knows our hearts, our motives. The ones that are his stick around with Jesus till the very end. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Um, if you don't like it, then take it up with God. He wrote the Bible. Okay, let's move on, shall we? Jesus is really preaching it here, isn't he? Eating flesh, drinking blood. You got to understand his death is a big deal is what he's saying. Um, notice again, he'll raise us up when? The last day, verse 54. For my, verse 55, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Okay, now we're back to eating and drinking again, and it's flesh and blood, and it's kind of gross. And he's saying, real food will keep you alive, listen, forever. That's why it's real food. Let me ask you a question. We've been talking about eating here, haven't we? We've been talking about drinking here, haven't we? Eating his, eating his flesh, eating the bread of life, drinking his blood. Who eats? say, what, what do you mean? Who eats? I'll tell you who eats. People that are hungry, right? You ever been to somebody's house and you just ate and they go, look, cake, cookies, pie. And you go, no, I'm so full. I couldn't eat another thing. On the other hand, you didn't eat all day and you come there and you eat the whole pie yourself, right? Why do you eat? Because you're hungry. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are those, listen, who hunger and thirst for food? No, righteousness. Jesus says in the same passage, John, five, uh, Matthew 5, listen, blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that know that spiritually they're bankrupt. They're in that line. I need a savior. I'm out of options. I can't save myself. I can't stop sinning. I'm distant from you, God. Save me. The person that prays that, sincerely get saved. But what he doesn't know is invisibly God's been drawing him. God chose him a trillion years ago. Do I understand it? No. Do I believe it? I do. Um, let's see, are we done with that? And I've pretty much alienated everyone. So let's move on now. Um, 
Actually, you know what? It's time for our two minute break. So let's do that. I'm going to hit pause on this thing and turn off my mic. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Find your seats back there, if you will, and welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study, part two. We are still in John 6. It is a long chapter. That's my excuse. Um, so somebody on the break, at, yes, I did. Thank you. Somebody on the break asked me, um, can you define saved or salvation? Um, and just off the top of my head, this isn't going to be good, but you asked, so it's your fault if it's wrong. Uh, salvation is the state of a person in which God has not only chosen him and drawn him and called him, but he has received Jesus Christ, listen, not as a great teacher or a great, you know, moral, nice person, but as God in human flesh who died on the cross for their sins. And as a result, their sins are now forgiven. They are awake and alive spiritually. They are born again. Um, they will never die. They now treat Jesus as boss, master, Lord means boss of their life. And the analogy I gave, the example I gave you of the guy who seemed like a Christian and was in church for 20 years and now doesn't believe at all, that person, therefore, First John, remember we read chapter two, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were really of us, if they were really believers, they would have stayed. Um, and so that person was never born again, was never alive spiritually, had a said faith as opposed to a real saving faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. Hope that helps. Did that help, Ken? All right. He went. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. We're back in John. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. And you guys on Zoom, are you still awake? Wave. Okay. I saw you wave, Ron and Sharon. Good. And Glenn, I see you too. And Francine. All right. Um, we're moving on. Um, let's see his food, his, sorry, verse 55, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they do something else. They remain or abide in me. That means they don't eat and run. They don't eat the flesh, drink the blood. I believed on Thursday, but it's Sunday and yeah, they have. That's one of the characteristics he's giving him, giving you is that he who believes stays with the program, if you will. Um, if you eat, truly eat his flesh and drink his blood, you remain in him and he remains in you and I in him. Reciprocal uh, inness, if you will. Verse 57, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me and for me, for that matter, you could add. The point is that people are, there used to be a horror movie. I think it was in the seventies, might be in the sixties. Anybody remember? I never saw it, but night of the living dead. Has anybody seen that movie? Yeah. A few people are nodding. Yes. When you walk around unsaved America, unsaved world, it's night of the living dead. They look alive. They sound alive. They are alive physically. They are not alive spiritually according to what he's writing here, uh, what he's speaking here. Um, so the remaining is very important and also um, living because of him. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and died. He who feeds on this bread will live forever. He repeats that sentence again. All this he says while teaching in the 
synagogue in Capernaum. It wasn't unusual in synagogues for them to invite guest speakers to come up and read the scripture and teach. Now, if you taught heresy, they would stop you. And that's sort of what's going on here because he's making people scratch their heads with what he's saying, claiming to be divine. I came from heaven, claiming to be the only way to get to the father, the bread of life. We said last week, there are seven I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the true light. I am the gate. I am the resurrection uh, and the life. There, there's seven of them. I have them listed here and I don't have them in front of me. Um, but in any case, that's one of them. I am the bread of life. Bread speaks of nourishment. Hungry people eat, we said earlier. Uh, thirsty people drink. The more thirsty, the more hungry, the more you eat. Um, let's see. Some people have seen this passage, especially Catholics, and said, oh, the bread, eating his flesh, Yes, and the blood, drinking his blood. Okay, so he's talking about communion. So that's how you get saved. You take communion. Wrong. Is there a connection? Absolutely. But when Jesus commands the whole Eucharist thing, he doesn't say, do this and you'll get saved. What does he say? Do this in memory of me. Because we need reminding, don't we? We're a distracted generation. My phone's ringing and I'm texting people. Do this in memory of me, what I did for you on the cross, he's saying. So the bread and the cup remind us of the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus done for you. By the way, we spoke of paradoxes earlier. Here's another one. God came to earth. He showed up. Jesus Christ. God showed up. And we killed him brutally, right? Trumped up charges in a court of law, seven trials actually. And they beat him and they whipped him and they spit at him and they punched him in the face and they nailed him to a cross and he died. That's the worst thing that ever happened on planet earth. It's also the best thing that ever happened on planet earth. Well, which is it? Paradox, two doctors. You know, you're going to use that when you get home. Um, ver <laughs> verse... Uh, so Jesus is done talking now. Now we're going to get the reaction of the Jews. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They don't like it, right? You may be sitting there or sitting there thinking, I don't like this either. Listen, if it's the truth, you don't have to like it you have to believe it, right? If you go to the doctor and he goes, here's your x-ray and this is the tumor here. And you could say, I don't believe it. See you later, doc. You can say that. If things are hard to hear, sometimes if it's the truth, you got to go, I don't like this, but I believe it. This is a hard saying, who can accept it? The word disciple means a learner or follower. Not all disciples People that learned from him, followed him, were saved, were true believers. You're about to see a ton of them split, abandon him. They were learning for a time, following for a time. But like the analogy of the guy I told you about who went to church and then split and stopped believing, 
That's who these people are. Remember, they want the Messiah badly, but they're under the yoke of Roman oppression. They want the Messiah to come and be a king, a military ruler, and kick the Romans out of Israel and take over and maybe kill them all, punish them. And he's, he doesn't want that. They want to take him by force. Remember last chapter and make him king. And he's, he leaves. That's not why I'm here. They don't want to hear about bread from heaven and blood and drinking of it. They don't like this. Okay. And they're not getting the Messiah they want. Second Corinthians talks about, there is a, listen, different gospel. And there's a different Jesus. Actually, the truth is there's a bunch of them, right? The Mormons believe in a different Jesus. No, they believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, they use the name. The Jesus they believe in is one of the sons, there are many, actual sons of Father God and Mother God. You say, who? Me too. Who? And his brother, Lucifer, was so jealous that Jesus got to save the world. That's why he became Lucifer. And I got more good news. If you become a Mormon, you men, sorry, ladies, you men can become gods and rule over your own planet. This is Mormon theology 101. I like that idea. Some of you can live on my planet if you'd like to. My wife's going, don't make him God, believe me. Okay. And she's right. Um, There's a different Jesus. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses is Michael, the archangel. He is not God with a big G. He's God with a small G. You explain that. I don't understand it. He was created by God, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yet he existed forever in the past, if you read the Bible. So there's a lot of different Jesuses out there, right? You got to believe in the true bread, the, the true blood that he shed that saves you and I. Otherwise, you can make him anything you want, but you won't have the real Jesus. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about people that say, I've read the Bible, I understand Jesus, I've read his words, just incredible. Uh, He's a great moral teacher, but he's not God. And C.S. Lewis basically says nonsense. That option isn't open. Because a man who says he's God And the only way to get to heaven is not a great moral teacher. He's either crazy or he's evil because he's not God. If if you're saying he's not God, I think he's a great moral teacher. He's not a great moral teacher if that's not true, right? He's a liar. Have you ever heard the L's lunatic, legend, liar, Lord? There's only one of those four. Jesus is either a legend. He never really existed. They made him up and... By the way, there's so many historians that testify to who and what Jesus was. You can reconstruct pretty much his whole life, not using the Bible, just reading historians from that era. Legend, no no credible historian believes he was a legend. Okay, lunatic. He was just crazy, right? Uh, Like the kind of person that thinks he's Napoleon or whoever, right? Charles Manson in his trial said he was Jesus Christ. The Reverend Sung Young Moon said he was Jesus Christ. Okay. So was he a lunatic? 
ask yourself, do lunatics do miracles and rise from the dead and walk on water and multiply loaves and fishes and heal people and raise people from the dead? Does he talk like a lunatic when you read his words? Okay, lunatic legend. Was he a liar? He was deceiving. He knew he wasn't God. He's just doing this to get a following. Maybe he'll end up preaching in a stadium. He'll make so much money. What happens to him? He ends up dying and rising. Lunatics don't do that. What, what's left? Great moral teacher. No, we already eliminated that. If he said he's God and he's not, he's not a great moral teacher. He is Lord, right? It's the only one left. Okay. Verse uh, 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. Does he know? Of course. He knew a trillion years ago that would offend them. Does this offend you? Verse 62. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It's a weird question, isn't it? What if? What if they see it? By the way, there's people standing there hearing him who did see it in Acts chapter 1, verses 8, 9, 10, right in there. The apostles saw him go. Remember? Looking up. What if they saw it? Would you believe that? Probably not. If they're not really his, given by the Father as a gift, they could see a trillion miracles, and they did, and still not believe, right? But the point of ascending to heaven is, do you know why he's going up there? Because his sacrifice paid for sins. He's ascending to the Father. He's sort of saying this. Does this offend you? Then get over it now. Because the next time you see me, I'll be your judge and you'll be kneeling before me and very sorry that you didn't believe. Does this offend you? So I ask you, does this offend you? It might, and that's okay. But I'm saying if it's true, we have to believe it, right? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He did. Verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. It's all spiritual. He's saying, you don't like what I said. You're offended because you're thinking physical. We want the Messiah to be a military leader. We don't like this flesh and blood thing. By the way, Old Testament flesh and blood means the whole person. Take the whole person in, including the way he died. The spirit gives life. It doesn't say the human being earns eternal life. It says the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. In other words, if you live in the flesh and you decide, I don't want to be born again, I'm just going to live the best life I can physically and hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I believe if you asked people on the street in a big city, how do you get to heaven? That's what they would say. I think if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, I'm basically a good person. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, God sees, yeah, that person's pretty good. How good do you have to be to get to heaven is the next question, right? Jesus tells you in Matthew 6, be perfect. Oh, come on. You say that's a ridiculous level. Uh, you're setting the bar so high, nobody can make it. 
Exactly. Blessed are the poor in spirit who hear that and go, well, if you have to be perfect, then there's no way I can get to heaven. I need a savior. Okay, Jesus, right? That's what he's trying to do. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in his book, if you break one part of the law and keep all the rest, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. It's all broken because God wants perfect people. Well, how can we be perfect? If a savior dies for you, you can truly be perfect. Because not only does he forgive your sins, he doesn't leave it there. He gives you his righteousness. We wear the robe that says Jesus's righteousness. In heaven, under your sin, it says paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no sins listed. Don't get to heaven if you die before me. Uh, and I hope you don't. Don't get to heaven and start apologizing as a Christian. I'm so sorry that thing I did in September of 1999. I'm so sorry. He's going to go, I don't, I don't remember that. Why did you remember that? That's all forgiven. My son paid for that. Why are you carrying that guilt? Let it go. Do you know how much I love you? Enough to die for you. Okay. Some people are falling asleep. We better move on. The words I've spoken to you are spirit, verse 63 and they are life. Yet there are some of you, verse 64, who do not believe. For Jesus was shocked that people didn't believe. Is that what it says? No. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Now we're hinting about Judas, who, by the way, is the ultimate defector, the ultimate fake, the ultimate counterfeit, Christian. We'll talk about that in a second. Go back to that verse again. There's some of you who do not believe. He's not surprised. He knew from the beginning. Now, the commentaries spent pages on what does he mean by the beginning? Does he mean the beginning of this sermon? Does he mean the beginning of his ministry? Does he mean from the day he was born? Or does he mean from the beginning? Way back, it would be this way for you guys, from the beginning. I think he knew from the beginning who would and who wouldn't believe. Now, underlying in that is incredible grace. Let me explain. If he knew from the beginning who wouldn't believe, <clears throat> and there's a crowd of 25,000 people, and they're hungry, right, for regular food. Remember the loaves and the fish? If he could see with his x-ray vision, excuse the stupid pun, if he could see won't believe, won't believe, won't believe. He'll believe he won't, she won't, she won't, she won't, she will, he won't. He could have just fed those people. The rest of you that won't believe, get lost. He feeds them all, right? He gives gifts, incredible gifts of art and music and cooking and sewing and building things and fixing cars and to people that he knows he'll never believe. But I love him anyway. God so loved the world, right? Incredible grace. He knows from the beginning he won't believe. He's even kind to Judas, knowing all along this guy's going to stab me in the back. Amazing. He knows who would betray him. Verse 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the father has, before it was drawn him. Remember that? Now it's enabled him. What does that imply? That if you're not enabled by the Father to come to Jesus, you are unable to come to Jesus. Why is that, Joe? Because you're dead spiritually. Not you, believers. 
When you were un an unbeliever, you were dead spiritually. The interesting thing is, these people are about to go away. They're going to leave them behind. The biggest mistake of their lives, right? Um, I'm still reading notes here. Um, yeah, we already did all that. Do you remember the parable of the rocky of, of the four of the soils? Remember that farmer casting seed. There's one type of seed called the rocky soil. Do you remember that? If we had time, which we don't, I would go there. Um, it's in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark 4, um, and it's in Matthew as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. The rocky soil is weird, I have to admit. Seeds fall on the rocky soil, and guess what? They sprout. Ah, born again? No. Looks like it? No. If you read, what happens is, the, the shallow soil is so shallow that when the sun hits, persecution, trouble, Jesus explains later in the chapter, what happens is they wilt away and die. Yeah, but they sure looked like they was growing just like our guy in church. We'll name him Harold. Remember Harold? He sure sounded Christian to me. He looked Christian. He prayed with his eyes closed and everything. He said, God bless you. And he must have been saved. Really? God knows, right? But if he left, he probably wasn't. There is an exception. And that is, Harold left the church. 26 years later, he's dying. And he bows his head and receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you hear him and you think, is he faking again? But God hears him, looks at his heart and says, no, he really means it now. Is he going to be saved? Yes. Is that fair? I was saved for 30 years and he's going to be saved for 20 minutes. Are you God? Am I God? Praise God is the right response, right? That's the exception. But if Harold leaves the church and leaves Jesus and leaves the Bible and never believes again, <clears throat> excuse me, and dies, he was never saved, according to the word. Oh, let's move on. You keep saying that and you don't. I know I'm working on it. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The way the Greek is constructed there, it doesn't mean they split for a while. It means that was it. They never followed him again. Harold, they split. This isn't for me. Blood and he's not the one for me. So, it appears from verse 66, by the way, that's interesting, that's 666, chapter 6, verse 66. Does that mean anything? No, I just threw it in to freak you out. Okay, many disciples turn away and they no longer follow him. So you might read this from a physical standpoint, you would say, oh, his ministry, uh, not drawing the numbers anymore. You think Jesus is worried about that? He knows from the beginning who believes and who doesn't. He said so right? And they don't follow him anymore. They heard, but they didn't really hear. They saw the miracles, but they didn't really see what the signs were pointing to. Verse 67, say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. This is important. So he turns to his disciples, the 12, and he asks, you do not want to leave too, do you? And that's just how it reads in Greek, by the way. It, it's a question that expects a negative response. You're not going to Hawaii, are you? Meaning, no, 
right? That's the way it's worded. You, do, you don't want to leave too, do you? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen, we won't do it, but I could spend a month talking about that one verse. It's so full of meaning. Simon Peter, who usually is the guy that puts his foot in his mouth, right? Instead of ready, aim, fire, Peter is fire, ready, aim. He just shoots from the hip, but he gets it. He shines here big time. You don't want to leave too, do you? Peter, speaking for the group, says, Lord, calls him what? Lord. That's who he is. He gets it, doesn't he? To whom shall we go? In other words, I was hungry and I'm full now. Where am I going to go? I was thirsty and I've had plenty to drink. Who else can give what you give? Notice the last part of the verse. It doesn't say, end of verse 68, you have the miracles. You have the free bread. What does it say? You have the words of eternal life. Miracles don't bring eternal life. It's his words and believing his word. He is the word of God. Remember John 1, 1? It's beautiful. To whom shall we go? Now in your life, if you can't say that, then you haven't come very far with Jesus. Say what? To whom shall I go? And you don't say that necessarily. I mean, you might when everything's great. But when you're, you got a health crisis or a relationship crisis or a money crisis or a job crisis or a thousand other crises, and you're in big trouble and it's a major storm, can you still say, who else am I going to go to? Right? I don't want to solve this problem myself. There's no one else to pray to. Who else? To whom shall we go? It's a rhetorical question, meaning no one. Because John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, no man comes to the Father except by me. Oh, that's the problem with you Christians. You're so narrow. I believe there are many paths to God. It sounds so good. Just like going to LA, you can take Highway 99. You can take Highway 5. You could go the coastal route and go all the way over there. Yeah, I know. But Jesus says there's one way. And in spiritual things, truth is very narrow. Spiritual things are like mathematics. Have you noticed? Mathematics are very narrow. Six plus four is 10. It's not 14. It's not 75. Even if you think it's 75 or 180, six plus four, let me get the calculator, is 10. I made sure. There's only one right answer. There's a billion wrong answers. Same thing in spiritual things. There's a thousand, there's 5,000 non-Christian cults in America. 5,000 wrong answers to six plus four. There's all the world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Islam. There's one way to heaven. 
to take any other way is to insult God who says, I gave my son for you. He bled for you. And you don't believe it? I'm going to go my way. That's the problem. Burger King theology. I want it my way. My Jesus may be different than yours. Then it's then you got to believe this Jesus, the one in the Bible. Let's keep reading, shall we? So they're going to leave. And he says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, here's where it gets a little strange. Verse 69. We believe, he's speaking for the 12. And we know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, this is similar to when he says in the Gospel of Matthew, remember in Matthew, he says, Jesus says to the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're Elijah, come back to life, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And, and he says in Greek, it's emphatic. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, remember, speaks up and says, I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you remember that? Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Same thing here. He's not saying this because he's so much more spiritual than the people that just split, or than our guy here. What was his name? Harry. Um, he's saying this because God's revealing it to him by his spirit. So he says, I be we believe. We know that you're the Holy One of God, meaning we get it. Does Peter at this point fully understand the crucifixion, the rising from the dead, the ascension? No. He's going to get it a lot more later on. And the bread and the blood and the eating the flesh will all make way more sense a year from now after it's all over. So you got to cut them a little slack. But they do believe now. Jesus's answer is shocking. Verse 70. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. Judas is the ultimate faker, the counterfeit. You want to know how ultimate he is? In the upper room, when they're having the Last Supper, Judas is there. Do you remember? And they're eating, and they're dipping the bread and they're eating. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. It's astounding to me. We all think they would be going Judas. You think? Yeah, Judas. It's Judas. Oh yeah. I knew it all. What do they say? Is it me? They go around the room. Andrew. Is it me? Philip. Is it me? John, James. Is it me? Judas. Is it me? And Jesus says, yeah, it's you. Remember I'm paraphrasing, but he was such a great counterfeit. He fooled them. He didn't fool Jesus. When the last supper happens, he, um, John is sitting next to Jesus. We know that because he's leaning on Jesus's chest, basically. Remember? And Peter says, ask him, who is it? Remember that? Do you know who's sitting in the seat of honor? The right hand of God, you know, Jesus is at the right hand of God. When a king had a banquet, if he invited you to sit at his right hand, that was the seat of honor at a banquet. Guess who has that seat at the Last Supper? Judas. He dips the bread and gives it to him. Do you remember? And 
Let's talk about Judas now. Judas is our Harry guy. Came to church, Harvey, whatever. What name did I say? Harold. Okay, Harry for short. I know him really well. Harold, Judas is Harold. It looked like he believed. The Bible says that as soon as Jesus dips the bread and says it's you, listen, the devil entered into him. You mean like demon possession? I do. Does that happen to Christians? No, impossible. Holy Spirit lives inside of Christians and would say to the devil, get lost, I live here. That alone tells you he was evil from the beginning, chosen to be that guy and yet fully culpable because the Bible says, woe to that man. It would be better for him if he wasn't born. Jesus says it about Judas. What else do we know? We know he was a thief. That's John chapter 12. I'm going to say I could be wrong. I'm on the wrong page where it says that he took care of the money bag. Do you remember? And used to steal from it. Judas was the ultimate faker, the counterfeit. Um, let's see. Uh, what else do we know uh, about Judas? Um, the word for devil is a di diabolos, from which we get diabolic, devil-like. That's Greek. Hebrew is Satan, which means adversary or accuser, slanderer. So Satan's going to run Judas just at the right time to betray him. Um, we already talked about that. Oh, I can't resist. Turn to, uh, no, we're out of time. We'll do it next week. Um, yeah, he, he was the ultimate counterfeit. In this chapter, we see three responses to Jesus. And this is true today on planet earth in 2021. Response number one, the unbelieving majority, verses 60 to 66 right? Most of them, oh, this is a hard saying, we don't like it, we're out of here. Remember that? On planet earth, do most people believe in Jesus? Answer, no, most don't. Christianity is the largest religion on planet earth, praise God. You know what's very close behind it? Very close. Islam, the Muslim faith, Muhammad. Christianity is the largest religion on earth, but it is by no means a majority, never has been. It's always been a remnant. Most people don't believe in Jesus. Does that mean we shouldn't witness? No, we should, right? Yes, but you said earlier, God chose certain people and not others, and um, God draws certain people, and exactly. But the ones that are being drawn don't have a tattoo here that says, God is drawing me, please witness. We don't know, right? So you might witness to... Um, a guy in on death row for murdering his whole family. And you might witness to the janitor at the prison who seems like a really nice guy. And you might be surprised that the guy on death row believes comes to faith and the janitor goes, yeah, this isn't for me. Might shock you. Therefore cast the seeds. Don't judge. Oh, he would never believe, but she might, you never know. Um, meant to mention that um, Judas is from Kerioth, that's why uh, Iscariot. Kerioth is a, a little town in southern Judah. He meant Judas, the son, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. Don't miss verse 70. Look what it doesn't say. Then Jesus replied, did you guys not all choose me? Is that what it says? Have I not, what? 
chosen you. They felt like, no, we chose you. Wrong. He chose them. Remember, follow me, Peter. Peter drops his fishing stuff and follows him. And must have later, a month later, went, what have I done? But God was drawing him. Let's close with prayer. If you have questions, email me or you want to argue with me. That's great, too. My number's unlisted. And we'll pick it up here next week, God willing. Thank you for being here, those of you on Zoom, those of you here uh, as well. And um, I'll see you next week, hopefully. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, here we are. We, none of us deserve your goodness. None of us. We were in that line, God, and you pulled us out. I don't even understand it. I'm so thankful. Your word says it's true. I believe it. So we're here to eat, God. And we had a feast tonight, hopefully, on the bread of life. You, your son, Jesus Christ, the sustenance we need, the true food. Thank you for eternal life, which we have already. Help us to live it out, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And even though we know it's you making us want to do it and making us able to do it, to serve you. Help us to feed daily, daily on your word, God, in, in the Bible, in prayer, in fellowship with other believers. Help us to fill ourselves up with you and then share it with a lost and dying world, Father. Thank you for the words of eternal life. Peter's right. You have them. Where else would we go except to you? Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. May they change the way we live, God, in total gratitude to you. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know, those of you that are here and those of you on Zoom. God bless you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.